0: Uh, Well, hey, you all made it to church today, uh, which depending on where you're from may not feel like that big of a deal. But here in Portland, that's like braving a Category 5 hurricane to come to church. That is impressive. Uh, It's good to see you Uh, again. My name is Kurt, and we're going to be kind of concluding this Sunday. This is our last Sunday before Christmas. It's coming. It's going to be here this next week on Saturday, which feels... Uh, wild and unexpected, but you know what whatever we're gonna roll with it. It's here um, What we want to do this morning is we want to look at the story of Jesus birth And what are all the different aspects and parts of that story that are kind of wrapped up into it? And so I I'm curious for you all um, Do we have is the slideshow up did I mess it up? Oh, there we go, okay What I love about this image is uh, so much of kind of the the art that comes from this time frame is meant to pack as much information in there as possible. Right? So when you have uh, our literacy rates are incredible today, but that hasn't always been the case. And so art was being massively funded specifically by the church as a means of education. And so what I think is fun, and I know not all of you can see all parts of it depending on where you sit. That's okay. Uh, But when you look at this image, what parts of the birth of Jesus story do you see represented there? I'm just curious. You can call them out. A stable? Yeah. Angels? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we got the three wise men over there, which, fun fact for pedantic pastors, there were three gifts, not necessarily three wise men, but yeah, we got the three wise men right there. A dove, dove. yeah, do we have a dove? Oh yeah, right there, it's so big, I missed it, that's good, thank you. Shepherds, yeah, absolutely, watching oar their flocks by night. Anything else you see and notice? Jesus. Oh. All right, would you pray with me? That's it. That's the... It's like some of you never went to Sunday school. You just lead with that. That's right, Jesus. And it's also important to note how central Jesus is and how, I mean, this is another major function of art, how Jesus is lit and central. And then you kind of see that that is drawing your eyes as a central part of it. And then your eyes are immediately drawn up to the light where it comes from, where you see the dove that I clearly missed. Uh, God and the rest of it. What else do you see? What was it? Oh, the lamb. Yeah, did you notice the lamb down at the bottom? Uh, Jesus known as the Lamb of God. You got the star in the back right there. That's an important piece of the whole nativity setup. Uh, The reason why I wanted to to pull this up and kind of uh, uh, re-introduce all of us to this story and all the different parts of it is because this morning we want to look at this story and we kind of mentioned the last couple of weeks that there's aspects of the story that are reflected in other stories that predate the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. When we talk about this idea of it's not necessarily represented in the picture but the virgin birth that uh, mary had not been with joseph before she became pregnant with jesus uh, that's something that's present in other stories so where do we see that and what does that mean we don't just kind of want to reference it we want to actually look at those different stories and to see what's the same and what's different from all of them so we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson uh, as we kind of flip through some of these different ones so the first one that we're going to look at this morning is horus is this doing nothing okay perfect uh (laughs) horus otherwise known as the falcon uh which is just an awesome imagery i was really drawn to it And I like that he liked to get out on the links. I think he's holding a a putter there. Um, 2400 BCE is where we have this origin story of Horus. Horus's father, Osiris, which I just remember from really cool skate shoes from the 90s. uh, But apparently it's also a a god. He was dismembered. uh, But then all the different parts of his body were gathered together by Isis which I know, I hear it too, uh, but gathered together by the goddess Isis, uh, except for, and I'll be delicate because there's kids here, uh, the a particular part of Osiris's body that would be necessary for making children was eaten by a catfish, so that just didn't exist anymore. And so Isis created from gold, that thing, and, and this is in fact how Horus was born. Uh, from this symbol. Now, Set, Isis's uh, brother, was very jealous that Horus was going to come and take power from him and so sought out to kill him. So Isis had to hide this baby, Horus, from uh, someone who was worried about the threat to power that Horus represented. Next, uh, we're going to jump forward quite uh, a bit here to Romulus and Remus, This is 750 BCE. Uh, The story was that the mother Rhea was also uh, forced to take a vow of chastity among the Vestal Virgins. And the reason for that is because if she had a child, it would be a threat to the power and the lineage of uh, the kingdom of that day. But she uh, becomes pregnant from the god Mars, the god of war impregnates her. Then the king orders that the twins are drowned, but they escape, floating down the river Tiber, uh, and they ultimately end up, the baby twins, in what is now Rome, is where they they move off of the floating, and they are, just to explain, this image that you've all been looking at, (laughs) kept alive by a wolf, a she-wolf, nurses Romulus and Remus, uh, and a woodpecker brings them food. Uh, And that one was just fun. I like that one. The other thing is if you're fans of uh, the show Succession Roman is also sometimes called by his dad Romulus Uh, Romulus and Rome or Roman would be tied together interesting fun fact Um, And so this actually what's another thing that's interesting about this piece of art is that sculpture of the she-wolf was actually uh, created at about 530 BCE, so about 200 years later, and then it's cast in bronze in the 1500s, and then the twins are added in the 1500s, the little bronze uh, sculpture and statue, which I thought was fascinating. So if you're like, those don't look like they were created in the same time period, you're right. About 2,000 years later, they were like, you know what, let's spruce this thing up a bit. Next story that we want to look at is, I said Alexander the Great. And uh, it's funny, but it's not that funny. Uh, Alexander the Great, 365 to 323. Here's the real joke I did that myself, and then I made it seem like I did it to someone else. That was all me. All right, Alexander the Great, 365 to 323 BCE. His mother, Olympias, dreamed that her womb was struck by lightning the night before her marriage. And then Alexander the Great's father, Philip, dreamed that his wife's womb was sealed with the sign of a lion uh, before they were married. So they both had, these parents both had divine dreams before the birth of their child that confirmed to both of them that their child was not going to be born of their union. And so it's believed because of the dream of lightning striking that Alexander the Great was divinely conceived of Zeus Uh, And that was ultimately Alexander the Great's lineage. This last one, which is going to be especially relevant, is because he also makes an appearance in the story of Jesus as Augustus Caesar. If you remember, it's his census that's called that brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. He's from 63 BCE to 14 CE, so he overlaps, obviously, with Jesus. Uh, Halley's Comet passed during his reign, and he claimed that it was... uh, his adopted father Julius Caesar, that was him going into heaven. Um, And so because his adopted father Julius Caesar was a God, he referred to himself as son of God uh, throughout his rule. And ultimately in 14, uh, when he passed away, he was confirmed as a God and worshiped in the Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, If you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, why is this interesting? It's interesting because uh, you have Son of Man, is the distinction that Jesus calls himself over and over again. Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. So, how does that connect to this understanding that the Roman, the very famous Roman emperor during the time, referred to himself as Son of God? One other fun fact uh, during uh, this time frame, uh, going back to Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great was seen as a god worshiped as a god and many other leaders in the future would call upon alexander the great to kind of confirm their throne also during the time of just after the time of jesus in 39 ce caligula uh who we've talked about in other messages he was the emperor of rome uh not just the the titular star of a dirty movie from the 70s but he was the roman emperor and he is wild some real samson vibes from this guy one of the things that he did during his reign to confirm that he was the emperor is that there was a port in Baea, and he made a two mile long pontoon bridge to Petolius. and then he couldn't swim and was afraid of swimming so he rode his horse on the two mile pontoon bridge while wearing alexander the great's breastplate uh, and this was done because an oracle had said, Caligula has a, has a better chance of being emperor than he does of walking between the bay from Baea to Pontilius. So he built a pontoon bridge to consolidate his power and to call upon these images. Here, here's the reason uh, why we talk about all of this is because during this time frame, the birth of Jesus, the, the birth of Jesus didn't happen at any time, at any place, it happened during a particular time in a particular place. And there were other stories and there were other myths and there were other knowledge of events that were happening in that culture that people just knew and understood. And so to take this story of Jesus and all of the imagery, right? What does Herod do? He wants all the young boys killed at the age of five because they represent a threat to his throne. We've seen and heard that multiple times already. That Jesus was not born of Mary and Joseph, but in fact, his divine lineage is tied to God because that is where this, and the same thing is called when we talk about the birth of Zeus. Zeus. Let's jump forward a little bit more to 1998. Um, I am curious, how many of you were born, you were around in 1998? Most everybody? Okay, if you weren't, that's great. Good for you. Really, I'm impressed. Uh, 1998, uh, two movies came out six weeks apart. Armageddon and Deep Impact. Do you remember this? Two movies about a meteor coming to destroy the planet and two very different soundtracks and very different movies. Uh, One is a banger, the other one's kind of depressing if you go back and you're trying to get inspired during the week and listen to it. Uh, And then, that exact same year, 1998, two animated films came out, Ants and A Bug's Life, also about six weeks apart. And you were like, what is happening with animated insect films? The reason why I bring those up is, what makes those films interesting isn't what they have the same, because we just understand that. I mean, it certainly is interesting that those films are the same. But if you really get into the films, what gets really interesting is where they diverge. What's different about those stories? The similarities they have are kind of obvious there was this feeling, and there was a lot of competition in movie studios at the time, so there was a rush to get out particular films. If you were the first one, you could capture all the audiences and eyes of these particular people. But as time has gone on, and you look back at those movies, what 's really striking is how different they are and how they carry very different legacies. I wanted to uh, to share with you there's a, a quote. Uh, right here. This is from Plutarch. Plutarch was a Roman historian, so a lot of the information we have about these mythologies are from Plutarch. Listen to what he said about Alexander the Great, who we looked at earlier. From what has been said, then it is clear that Alexander himself was not foolishly affected or puffed up by the belief in his divinity, but used it for the subjugation of others. Every once in a while as a pastor, you look through really obscure, obscure histories like Plutarch, and then you stumble upon a line like this, and they're like, they said the quiet part loud. Look at this. Because this came in a whole story where someone came up to Alexander and said, oh, can you believe this guy showed up at your party? You should call Thunder down as the son of Zeus and strike him dead. And Alexander's like, I'm not the son of Zeus. That he didn't believe in that at all, but in fact, he was fine with the story going forward, why? Because it consolidated his power. It let him use, in some of the language we've used in recent weeks, power over other people unimpeded, because that's what the gods did. They use power over people. So he's fine with those stories continuing and rising up. And you can look at all the different ways, horace and Romulus and Remus and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, that again and again, people were fine with these origin stories in the same way that the American origin story is linked in a garage somewhere, right? Who are the gods in our society? It's Google and Amazon and Apple. And they all share a similar origin story, right? They started in a garage, just a couple of scallions with no money to their name who really found a way. No, they didn't. They worked at other tech companies and worked with lots of other people that were at the forefront of their particular industries. And while a garage might feature in their origin story, it's not how it started. The same thing is true. And we look at the origin stories we create around bands, These same myths that we use today. That they started in these humble little beginnings. And what gets interesting about that is why do we keep telling that story? Well, we keep telling those stories in the United States of America because we're trying to keep the myth of the American dream alive. Anyone can rise to this level. You could be Jeff Bezos. All you need is a garage, rented or owned. And yet what we see is the way that we function in these different stories, the reason why we keep telling these mythologies has very real impact. And what actually gets interesting is where do those stories start to diverge? This birth story of Jesus, there are four gospel, uh, there's four stories of Jesus, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The birth of Jesus is only in Matthew and Luke. Mark, which is the earliest gospel written, uh, doesn't include anything about that starts at the go, we're, we're starting at baptism. John, which is the latest gospel written, doesn't include any of this information. There's no story of the birth of Jesus. If you've been to a church on Christmas and they're talking about the birth of Jesus, it's from two different stories, Matthew and Luke. Now I don't say that to say that means that it's not true or it's all made up, but rather in telling the story of Jesus, these weren't aspects that they all felt like they needed to include. In fact, all four stories of Jesus, what is the focal point of all of them, both on length of time that they talk about it and the inclusion in all four of them? It's the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that this is clearly the focal point of the story. It's the reason why they're telling it. And what becomes interesting is the use of these other stories, whether they be real or not, and how they compare to other stories in that same time frame. What I love is this idea that Jesus, they would tell the story of the earliest Christians of these same divine claims, born of a virgin, hunted to be killed because he offered such an obvious threat to the kings and rulers of the day. And yet, how did Jesus use his power? I mean, Jesus... Being the son of God, divinely birthed into this world through miraculous means. Stars in the sky, wise folks from across coming all the way to give uh, their tribute to this kid. Shepherds out in the field just minding their own business, angelically visited and said, you have to go recognize. That is a recipe by any of these other stories of what? Kingship and power over. As Alexander said, the subjugation of others. And yet, Jesus never once uses the power that he has over another individual. Isn't that remarkable? You might feel like this is a bit of like pastoral just kind of bluffing. Like, I don't know, you guys probably won't read the Gospels. I can get away with this on a Sunday morning. No, go back and read it. And it starts at the original temptation of Jesus after his baptism and his time in the desert is that Satan, the great tempter, is saying, use your power for yourself. And Jesus declines time and time again. Jesus declines to use the power available to him to prevent his arrest and his crucifixion. Never once does he use the power that he has. I mean, if he can heal a leper, he could probably make the mouths of all the Pharisees disappear. He doesn't do it. The power that he has is always used to lift those at the lowest rungs of society up. The reason why I share all this is that I grew up in a culture and a system where anytime I was told, hey, these origin stories of Jesus, they actually have parallels to some other origin stories of other rulers and kings at the same day. I would say... No, they don't. The Jesus story is wholly unique. It's the only one. Or it was the first one. I'm sure there were copycats later. I said with exactly zero amount of research. Because for me, for Christianity to be true, for Jesus to matter, it had to be the only one. Or what I would say, well, it's the only true one. They all said it, but they were lying. This one's real. And as I've gotten older and more comfortable in wrestling and asking hard questions of the faith tradition that I am firmly and proudly a part of, I get to hold these other stories and explore them and say, what's the same? What's different? I don't have to be threatened by this anymore. I have, um... oh yeah, this is a good line. I wrote this down. Similarities to other stories, they don't invalidate Christianity, but it exposes its distinctives. The more I sit with them, the more I wrestle with them, I see the things that make it unique in the story that Christ is really trying to live out and call. So I don't have to be afraid of asking questions or wrestling with it. I can get excited about wrestling into it and finding out what's actually unique about this thing that we call Christianity. I have a a picture here. This is a a friends just bought a house born in 1976. You get the vibes just by looking at it. But we were in their their entertainment room in this room right here and looked up and I was like, Hey, what's the deal with those beams? Because they have these two beautiful uh, and this might be boring for a lot of you, but most beams that you see like this today are actually like laminate. They're just bunches of wood like all compressed together. These are center-cut uh, wood. This is all one piece of timber, both of them. It's beautiful. It's incredible. But that one that's lowered down is just ornamental. They put it up when they built the house because they were worried that the room that it was in it was going to be too big. And so they put that beam lower down and they actually took the carpet in the house and attached it to that beam to kind of block off the other part until they had finished building it. So that lower beam, you could get rid of it and the house would not collapse. You could take it out today, it will do nothing. It's just ornamental. And the reason why I thought of that in this story is there are these questions that I've asked of faith that have felt like taking a hammer to one of these beams. And I'm terrified. What if it all comes down? What if I ask the wrong question of Jesus or of Christianity or of faith, and the whole thing comes down? And here's the, the reality of that, is I can sit with the whole day, a lifetime of, "Hey, that beam's not load-bearing. It's OK. You can ask questions. If God is God. If Christ is Christ, it's bigger than the questions that we have. I can wrestle with my faith. I can ask hard questions of Scripture. I can look at these other stories, and it will be okay. And you know what? I'm still terrified to take a hammer to that beam. It's still scary. And I've I've talked to, to many of you, as you have asked hard questions of your faith for a long time. I don't long to go back to a rigid worldview that's terrified of asking any questions or having these conversations. I don't long for that. I don't long for a day and a stage where I had to to be in a church when they were like, virgin birth, right? And we were like, yes, virgin birth. We get it. We all agree. But what I desperately miss and long for is a certainty. I loved being sure. I loved knowing I was right. And I think as we head into this Christmas season and we try and sit with what does this story mean today? I mean, how does this idea of Jesus, how does it echo through 2,000 years to today? And how do I make sense of stars and mangers and virgin births and angels and wise men and frankincense and myrrh? The thing I miss the most is just the certainty of the story. I miss not asking questions about it. And yet, the thing that I found in asking these questions and wrestling is what I found on the other side of those questions is a deeper relationship and trust in who God is, what the Christian story is really about, the questions and the lack thereof that I thought were there to protect me I now see as a threat to my ability to show up fully in this world and to show up fully to the story of Jesus and what it means for you, what it means for this community, what it means for me, what it means for my kids, what it means for this world. And just because I feel today a greater closeness to Christ, a better, a greater certainty that this story and this path is one that I want to be a part of for the rest of my life doesn't mean I don't have to mourn the loss of certainty. Because it still hurts. I still miss it. I still wish that I could be in a place where we all just agreed and didn't ask questions. It was cleaner. It was simpler. Unfortunately, it broke apart under the very real world that we live in that is complex and tumultuous and difficult and constantly one to wrestle with. And so, this morning and this Christmas season, my hope is that we can look back and know that if God is God, there's no question that's too big or too threatening. And as we wrestle with the story of Jesus' birth, we are drawn more and more to what it means today in your real life all the things you're about to go do. What does this Jesus story mean? How does it show up? How does it inform my life and the way that I interact with everybody? How does it inform the way I'm gonna show up at the Christmas table and share food with loved ones and family? My prayer is that it does the same for you and you find a freedom that might be scary, but is good and deep and draws us deeper into the mystery of who Christ is. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the context and the time that you were born in. God, I thank you for the complexities of the story. God, I thank you for fear For feeling scared, God, that it is a reminder that there is something out there that is risky. And God's spirituality is inherently risky as much as we try and make it safe. The God asking big questions about what it means to be alive and what it means to be in community with others are inherently scary and risky. And God, I pray that as we face the fear and uh, feelings of being scared about the big questions of the birth of Jesus and the Christmas story, God, we would also be comforted by knowing that we are held by a God that says that we belong. Before we ask the questions, after we ask the questions. God, may you sit with us in the midst of the hard questions, but God, Walk with us after those questions when we have to wrestle with what it means to be alive, to actually show up to our lives and the lives of others. God, may we walk a path of power with and not seek for power over. God, may we use this image of you placed within each and every one of us for the liberation of others and never for the oppression.